What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. Today, we've got Tristan Cole here for the HyperChat, the founder or co-founder of Sempo, um, which is a company, a payment technology startup, uh, which I believe could be a game changer for humanitarian aid. So really excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, Galileo. So uh, before we talk about Sempo and, and, and the startup you're working on, maybe you could give us a little bit of background of, you know, you're Australian, you moved to the US, like what's your story and, and what brought you to New York City? Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a journey, but coming to the US has always been like something that I've wanted to do. I mean, my background isn't in humanitarian aid or even payments per se, but it's something that I think was a nearly inevitable getting here to, to this point. I mean, my background is more in e-commerce. I started a n- number of businesses that did reasonably well during high school. Um, you know, the first one I did was selling iPhone cables. And I was one of the largest suppliers of iPhone cables on eBay. Wow. So you're like a hustler. Yeah, yeah. But Awesome. I mean, you know, I was selling hundreds of cables a day. And I would get up like 6 a.m. in the morning, package 100 cables, go to school, and then do the same at <laughs> night. And it was crazy. And I remember the like, wow. the biggest thing for me was being able to buy a label printer. And I think the opportunity to purchase a label printer and that privilege of having those financial tools to be able to do that. Like a lot of people in the world just don't have that. And we take it for granted in developed countries. And so you were in high school in Australia doing all these businesses then... Um, you're, how old are you right now? I'm 20. Yeah, so you're only 20. So did you even go to college or how did you decide to like, I'm not going to go to college, I'm going to start uh, start a company? Yeah, so I finished high school. I promised my parents that I'd graduate. <laughs> that was the one promise that I was Solid. like, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> um, and ended up getting into aerospace engineering and, and business at you know an Australian university. Went cool. for two days and then decided to drop out. I was like, am I going to be where I want to be in six years? And I sort of extrapolated that out in my head. And the answer was no. Where did where do you want to be in, in six years? Well, I, I want to be doing things that are super impactful. And I think six years from then, I would have had a degree in aerospace and probably worked one internship. And, you know, you'd be at like day one, where today I'm, yeah. at, I'm at day one at 20 instead of at 26. So with a degree that is, I'm 100K in debt. Walk me through then when you you dropped out of university and then take me like like how long ago was that? And then what's the story of how you got to here in New York City working on Sempo? Yeah, so that was about three years ago now. Um, so during high school, one of those businesses ended up doing reasonably well. That was listed for sale. The business itself didn't actually get sold, but it kept making money for you know a while. And then we nice. decided to shut it down. Um, I mean, when you're building these sites, you sort of inevitably start to become technical. You want to change a colors button, you learn CSS. You Mm -hmm. want to build a form, you learn HTML and then JavaScript. And then suddenly you're exploring React and and Python and and all the other languages. And that's sort of how I started to get into um, software. And, you know, when I finished high school, went to uni, decided to drop out because I, I didn't think it was the right thing for me. And I ended up getting an internship at a fintech and was lucky enough to meet my co-founder, Nick, who is a lot smarter than I am. Uh, He's got a degree in astrophysics and aerospace engineering and is the sort of brains behind the whole machine. But we immediately bonded over the fact that we could bring our technology skills into the humanitarian industry and, and into sort of emerging markets more broadly. So you develop technical coding skills in bu- building these like e-commerce businesses in high school. And then what was the aha moment of like humanitarian aid is the industry that could really benefit from, you know, the use of improved payment technology or software? I mean, so we didn't go into humanitarian aid with the idea that we would build payment technology, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second. Mm-hmm. It was more, I knew that I wanted to do something that had you know, deep systematic impact in the world. Because when you sell things on the internet, sure, it's creating value, but it's not necessarily creating impact. And I'm a big believer that you should be working on things and, you know, investing in things and doing, like everything you do in your life should be towards the world you want to see. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so what is the problem with humanitarian aid? What, you know, what is the issue with it today? And how can we 
because I'm, I'm I'm sort of setting you up because I imagine there's something that isn't right with the status quo today that you see the opportunity to fix with Sempo. Yeah, so I mean, we were lucky enough to get some VC funding after you know quitting our jobs, and we we came into humanitarian aid with the idea that you know we could use data to better improve humanitarian responses. Very quickly, though, we moved into um, cash transfer programming. How do you get money to vulnerable people in the world in uh-huh. a humanitarian crisis? Cash transfers are basically just let's give people money because it cuts out the middleman. It's fast. It's effective, and it's transparent. And you know, most importantly, it's really empowering for someone who's just like lost everything or in a really you know sh- shitty situation. To be frank, it gives them dignity to choose what they want compared to something like in-kind aid where you're shipping in resources from one side of the world, it's really slow, it's costly, and it's not transparent at all for donors. And didn't you have some statistic on Tempo's website about the percentage of goods that get traded for cash or something like that? Yeah, this is a stat we bring up all the time. It's from UNHCR, and it's 70% of Syrian refugees sold the aid they were given to buy what they actually needed unbelievable. So it's it seems like not, the biggest problem isn't like this huge inflow of capital from, you know, and we're talking about like, I guess, you know, whatever, it, whether it's a natural disaster or war, like we need to get resources somewhere quickly. And so it seems like once the resources are there, how do we actually make them useful to the consumers in that economy? Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, the st- statistic that absolutely blows my mind and sort of makes me a little bit worried about the world is that if we were to give like every dollar we give today in development and humanitarian aid, if we were just to give that in cash instead of things or services, then we would have no more extreme poverty. There would be no more people living on less than a dollar, like 25 a day, which I think is the definition. Wow. Like explain that. Like there's enough capital flowing into the system, but it's just not being distributed correctly. Yeah. So in order to take everyone out of the world, you know, lift them up from extreme poverty, so it's about 700 million people living on $1.25 a day, we would need around $80 billion. And US development budgets alone are about $140 billion. Humani- humanitarian relief budgets a year are about $30 billion. Wow. And so let's talk a little bit about the status quo, because this is something you enlightened me about, and I was blown away t- to find out, which is when a crisis happens, and these aid organizations go in, they're sending someone on the ground with physical cash, like you were saying, because people need cash, to hand out to people. And then, so is that actually how these systems work? And Yeah, when, when you want to do cash transfer programming today, you really have two options. One is you operate in countries that have established digital payment networks, which are very few, but there are exceptions to that rule, like M-Pesa in Kenya which is amazing. It's a, a mobile money SMS-based mm-hmm. uh, transfer system. Or you literally bank transfer, say, $2 million into a local bank account, withdraw that in cash, and hand that to a bunch of subcontractors you know, with stacks of cash in a backpack, and they'll walk into a, a village or a community and hand that out, like pen and paper, handing out like wads of cash. Wow. Which you can obviously see there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah, that's insane. So... Um, so that's sort of tease up the problem that Sempo is like looking at. So I'm curious, you know, what, so what are you doing about it? What is Sempo? What, what's your product? And, and um, I know you did, you actually went to some of these places where aid is being given and did on the ground research to like inform your first product. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah. So we, you know, you don't stumble, you, you, you don't stumble upon these ideas and suddenly it just comes out of nowhere. It's an iterative process, and we like deeply believe in human-centered design. So actually getting boots on the ground, going to countries, and working with communities to develop you know, software and applications that works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Sempo is, is it's a payments platform for NGOs to distribute money to vulnerable people or distribute vouchers. Because the big thing about distributing money is that you need to know who you're giving that money to. So while it would be great to be able to just give people money, like digital bank accounts or, or wallets, you, you have to get people to do past KYC. And uh, in Uganda, for example, 52% of refugees there can't get a mobile money account because they don't have the identity documents to pass KYC. You know, wow. the, hu- the humanitarian aid organizations, 
the populations they're targeting, they're generally unbanked. And there's lots of reasons why people are unbanked, but the three biggest are a lack of trust in existing financial institutions, a lack of identity, and, I mean, uh, the, the lack of the lack of literacy. I mean, financial products today aren't built for for them. You know, that you have to be online to, to be able to use a bank. Yeah, and what I also see as a huge problem is, like, is there reliable internet everywhere? Does everyone have a smartphone? Like, there's just hardware infrastructure needed if we're going to di- essentially digitize the economy. But on the flip side, it seems like that's a huge opportunity, which is what Sempo is going for, which is by giving these people a bank account, you know, the one billion plus people that are unbanked and bringing them on with Sempo's platform, like you're you're connecting them to the world and by connecting them to the world's financial system, like I guess Sempo gets its cut. So I'm actually curious, are you, are, is Sempo a profit entity? Yeah, we're, we're a for-profit company. I mean, wow, okay. we, we made that decision because we think it's, you know, we can have a bigger impact by being for-profit. It means mm-hmm. we can raise, you know, venture capital, we can raise money from investors yeah. and scale our impact. As a non-profit, you can't necessarily do that as well. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. And actually, it's a controversial opinion, but I'm glad you brought it up, which is like, if you really want to move fast and break things, you know, raising the most money possible and investing it and like incentivizing the smartest people in the world to work with equity is really how you move fast and break things. Tesla, for example, in my opinion, is doing more for reversing climate change and and good for sustainability of the planet than any organization, charity or not. But they're not a you know, so it's, yeah, I think it's yeah, interesting definitely. you say I mean, that. You can, and you I'm a huge a... believer in that. You know, you have to make your own profit to yeah. be a sustainable organization. Exactly. I mean, just giving people money or, or giving money to a problem, whatever that problem is, let's say it's climate change, isn't sustainable. You have to invest in in solutions that can solve the root cause. Wow. And it's almost so funny that we're talking about Sempo in that regard, because that's the problem you guys are fixing, is that people just throw money at these, you know, in these bad situations without like a real solution, a sustainable solution. Yeah, exactly. And I so, mean, that's something we're actively working towards because right now what we've built is very much just a digital vouchering solution. Um, it works by handing out like digital vouchers for, pe- for people to reimburse those vouchers at partnered vendors. So we've, you know, operated in Lebanon, Iraq, Kurdistan, Greece. Yeah, so could you give us a tangible example of like a a small project you guys have done or Yeah, so the the program we did in Lebanon, we went to went into the country, we were working with Lebanon's largest community NGO, uh, Conciel, and we distributed uh, digital vouchers to around two hundred Syrian refugees on the border of Syria, um, in Akar, which is northern Lebanon. And like you went to Syria to do this, right? We didn't go to Syria, went to the border. Oh, but you actually physically went all the way that's crazy to me. Yeah. To just like but yeah, sorry, continue. So, so what that involved is the NGO, you know, they, they know the community really well. So we went into the, the local like Syrian refugee um, camps mm-hmm. and we just spoke to the community. We didn't even show what we built because we, we had a product and, and a, you know, a, a transfer modality where you could transfer credits. But we didn't show that at all. We just spoke to people. And then after that first week, we sort of identified that there were a few um, big problems that existed in the community. Okay. For example, um, a Syrian refugee generally has access to internet at a community center or at their house because they have Wi-Fi. But a lot of them wow. don't have um, data on their mobile. So when they go to the store, they they you know they can't use internet. So you can't build a a a digital wallet that requires internet for making transfers. You have to have an online transfer function, which you know, is what we built. It's a hosted wallet. It works very similar to, you know, a Google authenticator code. It syncs once when you first sign up and then and then the vendor scans your code and it that because they vendors generally have internet, they then post that to our server. Wow. So the just to refresh, the person who got this voucher mm. on their mobile phone, let's say, it, but they're not going to have data, so they're not going to be able to access it. But when they go to the store, that vendor has internet data, and that is therefore still connecting into your system, saying yep. that person's voucher got reduced by this much. Yep. So only one party needs internet. Yeah, so only one party needs internet, but there's still control over like how much money you're sending because you actually, as a, as a refugee, will type in, say, $10, and then the voucher is only redeemable for $10. Wow. And what's unbelievable, sorry. And 
I mean, when we when we launched, we actually went to Lebanon without an Android app for refugees. We went with tap to pay cards, very similar to MasterCard. And oh wow! So they didn't even need a phone. No, so you didn't even need a phone. And we've actually built those now that they work completely offline. And with a pilot we're doing in the Pacific with an Australian NGO, we're doing it in remote communities in Vanuatu with cards that work completely offline. But it doesn't work everywhere. You know, some populations have access to mobile phones. Some have access to only Nokias, which are SMS. So you can do transfers via SMS on our system. And some have access to nothing at all. So you have to give them a, uh, basically a MasterCard or something similar. What this results in is, I guess your customer, the person you're bringing a lot of value to in this situation would be the NGO. You know, I don't know if it's like Red Cross or Oxfam or some of these international groups, but the difference seems like night and day, which you're giving them of, okay, we got 3 million, let's just start handing it out in cash and hope that it does well, versus here's 3 million in vouchers. We can literally track every single purchase. Yeah, what people exactly. paid, which vendors got paid, and we can. Before you didn't even know how much of the money actually went to aid and food and stuff that mattered, but now you can actually track that and see and improve. And like, it seems like this unlocks so much for what we can do with NGOs and aid. So, uh, with, yeah. without a doubt, and like, what we've built today is sort of level one. It's mm-hmm. a voucher solution, which is really important for some humanitarian crises. In some situations, you only want to distribute vouchers because it's most appropriate in the market, or you want to, you can only distribute vouchers because people who don't have KYC documents, you actually can't give them money. So vouchers is like the best option in, in this situation. But what we're really doing when we're working with these humanitarian organizations, we're starting to bootstrap new digital payment networks and proxy financial systems in these countries. Yeah, so, and you're banking the unbanked, essentially, is what you're saying. Yes, but in, in, a, in a roundabout way. I mean, every blockchain startup out there says that, you know, they're solving this 2.2 billion, 1 billion, whatever, like, number you can pull out, whether it's, like, World Bank or others. This huge problem of people who the next don't billion. have... Yeah, yeah. People who don't have access to financial services or bank accounts um, or are underserved currently. Because when you go to these communities, it's not like they don't have financial services. They have informal, um, you know, community financial services where you might have a lending pool where everyone, say, puts in a dollar a week into, um, literally gives a dollar a week to, say, their community leader who keeps that money safe and secure. And if, if something, say, happens to someone, then they can ensure that loss, whether it's someone's lost a job or maybe someone's getting married and needs a loan to be able to pay for that that wedding. So you do have these informal financial services, but they've never had um, digital products and digital financial services that have worked for them because Westerners, similar to how you do in-kind aid today, think you can just go into a country and just like say, yes, I know you need this. Here's you know 10,000 shelters or 10,000 blankets. And suddenly the local blanket maker is out of business because you've just airdropped in 10,000 blankets, right? It's wow. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned something that I want to touch on, which is that there's crypto under the hood of this solution. And you don't talk about Sempo as a crypto company. And it's not something that's advertised, which, it, you know, after this whole ICO bubble, it was like, oh, you add crypto, you're worth 500 million, you know, and then there was the whole crash and everyone realized it was there was so many BS projects. But, you know, a lot of I'm still a huge, I'm a Bitcoin investor, you know, maker, investor, crypto believer in the promise of the technology. And so Sempo is is actually leveraging cryptocurrency technology to be able to do all of this, but you're not even, you know, that's just how it works. You don't even say that on your website. So could you talk about, you know, what what's the strategy behind that, about the marketing with it? And then yeah, how sure. is crypto actually used? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in, in blockchain technology and, you know, what it, offers for the world. I think, you know, when you send an email today, it's fast, it's secure, and it's basically free. But you don't like know or care what protocol is keeping that secure on the back end. And I think similar to payments, you know, blockchain technology and the way protocols uh, are kept decentralized and secure, for the majority of people, it doesn't really matter. 
as the Syrian as... refugee doesn't care that, he, that it's crypto that's no, running that No, no. To them, it's like, <laughs> can they feed their family for this week? Yeah. You know, that's their problem. And I think, I think that, you know, I'm personally a believer that the next billion blockchain users and wallets will come from emerging markets because it's those markets that need blockchain the most. You know, what hmm. blockchain really offers and, and cryptocurrency is a way to do payments that that are decentralized, which means that they don't have a trusted intermediary. You don't have to trust a third party. Mm-hmm. They're fast and they're secure. So when when people always ask, well, how, why is that better than PayPal? And sure, you're right. In a lot of, you know, the developed world, PayPal is, you know, all right, it works. But you're having to trust that PayPal doesn't get hacked, isn't corrupted, and is going to like look after your money and I think in in terms of emerging markets their governments are a lot more unstable they potentially don't even exist and people just don't have trust in these third party institutions the question is with crypto like would you rather trust a human or would you rather trust math with your money and yeah, I know where my, crazy. I know where my money is in on that bet. Like I I think blockchain will make blockchain is like is doing to payments what the internet did to information. The internet made information free, secure, you know, censorship resistant, instant. Like I can speak to my family back in Australia on the other side of the world for free instantly all those things blockchain will do the same thing for payments yeah wow it's a game changer in terms of building you know blockchain wallets for those markets right now sempo is a hosted wallet solution which means similar to coinbase we we keep private keys on a centralized database they're all encrypted and and you know kept secure but what we're moving towards is having a a self-sovereign, you know, non-custodial wallet, which means that the private keys are actually on the device of the person's, um, you know, wallet or phone. So it means that we literally do not have access to their money in any way, shape or form. So it means that you are literally in control of your own financial future. And this is like a nano ledger similar, like a hardware wallet? Yeah, it's wallet very kind of similar thing. to but a nano ledger. It would be built into your phone. It would be built into your phone wow. or into a, a transfer card. And I think the biggest problem with crypto wallets today and just cryptocurrency in general is they're built for the top 1% of the world. When you the know, bottom 10 or 20% is really the, who needs yeah, it. Yeah, really who needs it today. You know, when you look at a, a wallet like, let's say, Coinbase wallet, it's a great wallet. It's easy to use if you. Uh, literate and speak English and know what a 12-word mnemonic is, (laughs) right? And are able to save that and understand what that means. You know, I think that similar to the way you reset a password on Facebook, social recovery, where you have trusted friends who can help you recover your your, um, private key or your password for this example, will be a killer use case for solving this problem. Oh, this is a crazy... You, you told me about this last time we met up, and I could not believe it, which is this theory of, like... So I guess Facebook, you're saying, is already implemented to some degree of, like, if I'm locked out of my account, but six of my best friends say that this is me, then I can get back in. Yeah. Can you explain this and how it ties yeah, so into it's, it's What we're looking at doing is... it's What that is, it's social recovery, and it's using secret sharing. So the way that works at a high level is... You say, have your private key, you split that into, say, six different pieces or a proxy of, you know, what your private key is. And if any three of those people come together, for example, out of six, then they can recover your your private key or your password for you. And an example of that is like Shamir's secret sharing. So you can just put in, you say how many people you want to be able to recover. Let's say it's six. You only need... but you only need three people out of that six to recover. I mean, it can be mm-hmm. as whatever combination you want. Gotcha, yeah. And how does that relate to Sempo? You know, what's exciting about leveraging that technology with what you're doing in Syria and that kind of stuff? Well, so right now it's a, we've got a hosted wallet solution and we're, we're moving towards building a, a self-sovereign, non-custodial wallet. And 
you know, like that's management. so many big words, but I'm like, could you dumb it down for me? Yeah, like, okay. what does that mean for the refugee or the actual system that is a breakthrough? You know, how, yeah. that that means <laughs> that they, for the first time in their life, they can control their own like money and their own wealth, right? Like instead of getting a card, they can just spend. They sort of have an account. Yeah, they can start like a mini bank. For example, account they can. Of, yeah, okay. it's like a mini bank account without being a bank account. They can start saving money where before they couldn't do that. They could start earning interest if they want to. They it means that it's their like funds and in a market where you know government you know when you think of the united states and you know 2007 was an exception to this but generally when you think of the united states you trust that when you put your money in in a bank account that it'll still be there tomorrow and that you'll be able to get out, get that out and you trust that because you have trust in the united states government you have trust in the united states dollar and you have trust in like the regulation that's around that in mm-hmm. a lot of these markets, they just don't have that. So blockchain enables people to be able to look at, control their own wealth. And, you know, in order for us to be able to be a blockchain startup that is developing emerging market, you know, products, we ha- and not tell people that we're a blockchain startup, we're just a better product than what exists today. Social um, secret sh- social recovery or the ability to somehow recover your keys if you lose them is a really important part of that puzzle yeah gotcha and it's so cool because you're you're in many ways disrupting for that consumer what a bank would be but sempo is not a bank you're just giving them the tools to be a bank themselves exactly which is what you're talking about when owning ownership of that private key so then the fiduciary duty isn't on sempo which would be on the u.s financial institution it's almost on that individual to take care of their key and yeah. so this is kind of the true democratization of banking and the promise that crypto gives. It's like exactly. instead of the way I kind of am thinking about it is like the financial system in the U.S. is great because if I'm a citizen and I pay taxes and I open up bank account, like I'll get approved. I want to send money like I'll get approved so I don't have to worry about it. But there's like this layer of waiting for like this approval of the system for my money to go through. And then it has to run through that system. But if it's on the decentralized way, like they can't proactively stop it. They have to reactively stop it. I can run whatever I want on the blockchain. And as exactly. long as I'm, I'm paying the gas fees for the ETH network, like that's going to run. And maybe you can regulate it if you're the government and say that I can't do that, but it's like retroactive. It's already happening. You can't stop it. And so that's what gets me super excited about, you know, thinking about these countries is like that whole, you know, that that layer of bureaucracy, like they're skipping it. It's that idea of like M-Pesa, like leapfrogging technologies. Yeah, Um, you're you're 100% right. I mean, blockchain is, and and cryptocurrencies more broadly, that it's it's a leapfrog technology for these markets. It is without a doubt going to just people are going to skip banks. Like, why would you go to the inferior solution? Totally. Um, and I, I think w- when you give people these, you're you're not giving them bank accounts. You're giving them the tools, and they have to be really good tools to make sure that people understand, you know, what it means. You know, that we can't reset your password for you. That you have to keep good care of it. And things like social sharing are a really good way to to do that. Um, in terms of talking about how we actually how we actually, you know, we're, we're built on Ethereum today. Um, that was a choice just because it was the best, um, you know, it's the most popular blockchain for developers and for, you know, real products today, in products in market today. And right now, the way that we predominantly operate is using DAI, which is, which is a decentralized uh, stablecoin on the Ethereum blockchain. So DAI is, it is built on top of Ethereum and it takes Ethereum into its system and uses that as collateral to then issue stable uh, US, basically US dollars. So it's soft pegged to the US dollar. Yeah, this is, and I, I'm, I'm just waiting for you to finish because I'm an investor and maker. Are you an investor and maker? Uh, no, I'm, well? no, I'm not. Okay, so maker is the governance token, which is like, I guess sort of like the company or like group that is running this, the governance token behind DAI. Yeah. deciding what collateral is backing it. And so DAI, I'm sure we could talk about that forever, is this crazy concept of a decentralized bank, um, you know, going back to the system where that DAI, which is worth $1, actually has something backing that $1, which in this case is $1 worth of Ethereum. But in the future, Maker wants to vote to have that be a basket of assets. Like, yeah, multi-collateral. You know, foreign yeah. currencies, gold, copper. It'll be, you know, perhaps more stable than any single nation's currency. And so I'm curious, like, 
I guess it's really it's a, to me it's amazing because you're actually using Dai today in a real world scenario. Like this is one of the few besides Bitcoin being in a super you know esoteric inflation hedge. This is a real world use case of blockchain that's actually the best thing, better than the status quo today. That's kind of mind boggling to me. I mean, you, you look at Dai today. The reason it can't keep its peg, so Dai isn't able to currently keep its peg well yeah so it's super new US, so it's like to the us dollar yeah. because a lot of people were opening up these cdps or coll- collateralized debt positions mm-hmm. the way that you create die a lot of people are opening these up to b- positions to speculate on the price of eth and not to use it not as to like, use it as a like utility not to use it for the fact that it is a, U- a us dollar or a stable asset on the ethereum blockchain and you know where one of the few companies but there there are a lot in the space that are working with Dai. I mean we're very close with the team and we're using it for a real world use case. Um we've we've launched Dai instances in in Greece. So like um, that's literally what your system runs on. Like every transaction is through using Dai on the ETH blockchain. M- most of them. So in terms of our our voucher, we've actually then wrapped so the Dai the Dai um smart contract we then wrap again in another smart contract that enables us to issue vouchers that are backed by die gotcha. but these vouchers can only be redeemed for die if you're kyc approved so it's putting this like kyc process around die which means that we can do it compliantly i mean in terms of you were talking about compliance um yeah. you know, i agree with you that blockchain is sort of forcing retroactive compliance but we're very much, you know, we're we're taking an approach where we're we're working, you know, closely with governments and also with, you know, specialized law firms to make sure that what we're doing is okay and within the law and and you know appropriate. And if you think about it, the government should want you like you're helping them. You're building a system to help their citizens. So in theory, there's a lot. Maybe they can tax it too. I don't know. There's should be yeah. a lot of incentives for them to want you to work with them. And, you know, building on this point, we could talk about Maker forever, yeah. <laughs> actually. But um, so I own a little Maker, so full disclosure. But what what has been fascinating in this space is Facebook's push. There, yeah. The rumors for yeah. Facebook to launch a stable coin, which is basically they want to launch their own version of DAI, essentially, is what I'm reading at. Or is a stable coin um, backed by a basket of foreign currencies. This is the latest rumor, which is going to start with being released in WhatsApp for remittances in India. And so I wonder, like, what do you think... You know, to me, this is nobody's talking about this, but it it's a game changing thing for crypto and blockchain that a huge tech giant like Facebook is pushing into this so quickly and could potentially launch their own coin. I mean, I'm full disclosure. I'm a believer in Facebook. I think Mark Zuckerberg is one of the best CEOs um, of our generation. I think controversial. Yeah, def- definitely controversial. He's gotten a <laughs> lot of hate, and I think you know, some of that hate is without a doubt deserved. Facebook, um, you know, does cause issues in society. But I also think in a lot of the places we operate, Facebook is a public utility. In these places, it is the internet. You know, you don't use Google to search for a local vendor, you use Facebook. And the reason Facebook can't necessarily charge for their product is because a lot of these people in the world literally could never afford to use Facebook. So, you know, whether that's in Africa or the Pacific, I think their average revenue per user is like under $2 Mm -hmm. per quarter. So, you know, these people just couldn't pay for Facebook. So they're giving it away for free. And in terms of the stable coin that they're building, I mean, overnight, Facebook could become not, I mean, firstly, the biggest blockchain project out there besides maybe Bitcoin, which is, you know, a unique sort of anti-inflation hedge. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, it'll become the overnight the biggest blockchain product out there. It'll not only compete with payments companies, but it'll start competing with central banks. Yeah. So I was actually that's at, crazy to me. Yeah, it is nuts. I was at the IMF um, for the spring meetings, and I was listening to one of the the conferences that they held on digital payments and and the future. And the CEO of of Circle was there, and it was a really fascinating discussion. There were you know, the head of the Kenyan Central Bank, European Central Bank, and the IMF. And it's interesting because I don't think they fully, like, the the people 
working at these central banks, there was so much gray hair, a lot of suits, and I don't think they fully understand like what is coming in terms of this wave <laughs> of like blockchain technology and like it is potentially making their role like only the top 10 banks in the, the central banks in the world will like still exist in in 10 years maybe 20 years is is my sort of long-term bet because it is making their their role redundant i mean for the first time in history people can control their own money and don't have to trust a i don't have to trust a a third party over here to send money to you yeah and like because it solves the double spend problem and in terms of facebook being able to roll out this technology globally and create like it, it is a corporation creating a global currency i mean if facebook was a, a country they'd be the biggest country yeah i love that by, by like, far by far by far right? and they're, they're like, growing like crazy, crazy like yeah. two billion people yeah. every day on their apps use their thing that's it's mind-boggling and it, it, and it's it's the way i look at it is there's finally competition for the fiat central bank system which we yeah. have all these countries doing only the top ones are going to survive like you're saying the top 10 yeah. i think it could be less than that the us dollar the the yen the yuan the euro but who knows how long that'll last because they're going against finally we have a competitor which is crypto which is decentralized which is bitcoin there's a, you know it's math it's an algorithm exactly. there's not just the gray hairs in the room deciding how much they should print based on like flawed economic theories you i know? mean people it's, just people assume that just because what is today is going to be like the future. Like why is fractional reserve fallacy. banking a thing? You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be a thing. We don't have to have a 2008 situation every <laughs> decade or two. So what do you think about the, why is Facebook building a crypto? Because why don't they just issue a stable coin? Why are, the, the thing that's super confusing is this report from the New York Times reporters that they want to get outside capital and mm. hold in a bank account, a basket of foreign currencies for raising outside capital as like a fund backing this stable coin. So um, that to me was surprising. Like Facebook's got 40 billion on their balance sheet and they're looking to raise a billion for this random fund. Like they could fund it themselves. So why take outside capital and what, why do they need to have a crypto component? Why couldn't they just issue Facebook coin and say there's, it's in the bank account? You know, cause they're centralized. So the whole decentralized notion gets taken out. And this, these are all rumors, so we're speculating. But yeah, I'm really, we're, we're you definitely know. speculating. Um, I mean, I'm not, I don't know like what they're doing in in detail, so I can't necessarily like comment with accuracy on that. But the, I mean, what what they're doing is very similar to say the US, um, the USD Circle Coin, the Gemini Dollar, all these other fiat backed uh, stable coins. So they've got, you know. Fiat, they've got these yen, US dollars, they've got collateral in a bank account, and they're issuing the equivalent in on Ethereum, say, as an ERC20 token. So Facebook seems to be taking that route of having collateral behind it, whether or not it'll be some sort of mechanism where, you know, maybe over time, for example, the amount of the ratio of collateral required to keep a stable asset is actually less fractional reserve we're going back to that well potentially, <laughs> potentially right yeah, but yeah. but i mean bitcoin for example has zero collateral behind it it's a different because it's a it's it is a pure cryptocurrency right mm -hmm. what is securing the network you know two billion dollars of mining technology is securing the network and the amount of code the amount of brand value yeah and, and brand brand rate. value but the, it's a it's the hash rate right it's those those mining pools and individual miners out there, those full nodes that are competing to solve this problem, this mathematical problem every, uh, what is it, like 10 minutes is the, the, block, mm -hmm. the block time for, for Bitcoin. So that is like a pure cryptocurrency. So I think in terms of, you know, blockchain and cryptocurrency, they're, they're different things and you, they're, they're sort of on a spectrum, right? Bitcoin is like on one end of the spectrum, like it is very... The, the, the team behind that is they have their like very strong values believe in it fundamentally and you know generally are a little bit fringe and then you, you like you, you sort of go down you go down the like that sort of spectrum and you, you sort of you hit things like DAI and Maker which are you know they, they're backed by collateral but it's Ethereum so it's still like very decentralized and then you keep going down and, and it's suddenly you're getting into like fiat backed um not cryptocurrencies, but like stable assets on the Ethereum blockchain. 
And why would you do that? Well, the reason Facebook might decide to build either a public blockchain or on the Ethereum network or, or something is because when you do that, you're creating an open financial system. And that is enables developers around the world to basically interact with money like they've never been able to before. When, 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 when you want to try and, as a developer, set up a payments product today, you have to like manually negotiate with hundreds of different payment processes, PayPal, banks, um, work through all the regulation to work out, is this thing even possible? When it's built on the Ethereum blockchain or, or a public blockchain, sure, you still have to do that, but suddenly anyone in the world who can write software can interact with money and build new financial products on top of these public blockchains, whether that's decentralized lending, um, you know, insurance, yeah. all these different financial products that mm -hmm. you had to be a big company to be able to work with. You know, for example, Uniswap, right, is on the Ethereum blockchain, is built by one guy, and it has something like $7 million of Ether in it today and is growing like crazy. Wow. So, you know, suddenly every developer out there, and, like, it, it becomes more of a meritocracy when you move towards open finance. Yeah, because I'm tr trying to think through what piece of the blockchain technology is Facebook using that gets them excited about this product? Is it, like, you're saying it seems like this ability to have developers build on top of it and it become a platform for, like, I wasn't even thinking that, insurance and all this other crazy stuff? Maybe that's why? Um, that's my speculation as to why. I think for them... You know, they've tried to issue... It's not like Facebook hasn't tried this before. They've tried to issue currencies and coins before. You know, they had, like, the Facebook credits that you could use in games. But building a public blockchain, which, you know, it seems to be what they're doing, that has collateral behind it or, you know, I don't know what their um, consensus mechanism is or anything like that, but it is a public blockchain, which means external platforms, external developers, external apps can suddenly, you know, interact with the 2 billion people on Facebook and interact, start interacting with their money. Wow. And so if you were, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if you were one of these companies like Facebook, you know, Amazon, your Zuckerberg or Bezos, and you're looking at this blockchain technology, you know, what's your move to issue a coin and what strategy would you take and why? Or like what, what's the big opportunity for a big tech company to push a coin like this? I mean, I, I feel very out of my depth trying to answer this question, but <laughs> in terms of, I, I'm, there's different approaches. I mean, you, you see like Jack Dorsey going more like, you know, he'll, they'll be the application layer that interacts with the Bitcoin network. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you see Square supporting Bitcoin, you know, yeah. they're, they're supporting open source development. He's a bull on the Lightning network and, you know all these things that are like the sort of purest form of, of cryptocurrency. And then you see others like Mark Zuckerberg using blockchain technology technology to issue these, you know, build a, a public sort of blockchain that is issuing fiat-backed digital currencies. And I think if I was a big tech company today, you know, I, I think the, say, for example, the approach that Jamie Di Dimon's taking is like completely wrong. Which like, is which is like, he thinks Bitcoin is is a scam, right? But they're also exploring blockchain with JP. It's so funny. What they have the JPM actually, coin, the JPM coin, which we should touch on briefly because that to me is crazy concept of the fiat system getting taken one level removed. Of now we're not even having dollars, but we're having JPM coin, which is backed by dollars, which they might be able to leverage as well. And so that's this theory of you know central banks want to or not central banks, but just banks. Um, private banks are, I guess, publicly held, but these private companies are, I'm not saying it right, but like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America could even issue their own coin backed by their trust in their own institution. And they're starting to, or they're working on it, it seems. I mean, this is sort of what blockchain offers. It's, you know, no longer do we just have to decide, okay, not even decide, it's not a decision for us. It's just, it's the central bank that issues money and we just have to accept that. And now we have a choice. Now we have a choice you know, you as an entrepreneur or CEO, you can decide, yes, we're going to build our own 
public blockchain or maybe we're going to build a token on top of it for different reasons. I mean, you, you saw the ICO craze in 2017. Whether or not any of those are successful, who knows? Um, I think tokens are potentially overrated and the technology itself is more interesting. Um, Got it. So sw switching gears, if we don't mind, to finish yeah. that thought, is on Tesla. I want to talk to you about Tesla because you're a Tesla investor. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's my largest shareholding. <laughs> so, yeah, so what, you know, why are you investing in Tesla? What do you see as the potential for the company? I mean, as I touched on at the start of this, this podcast, I'm a believer that, you know, you should be doing things that make the world a, well, not necessarily a better place, but make the future that you want to see for mm -hmm. me at least personally i want to see a better future and a better world you know not everyone does or not everyone has the guts to you know back the things that they're doing um in in terms of tesla specifically i mean climate change is a massive problem like we can talk about all the data that's behind that if you're a climate change spectic today you're probably crazy um you know the reality is that humans are warming up the planet um the impact that that has we're not 100 percent sure yet but it's definitely going to be like large we just don't know how large that's going to be and it's going to be bad and i think you know i'm in a tesla shareholder because it is you know as you said one of the most influential companies in the you know, renewable energy space. It is going to be the company that can really help change that that uh, that dial, right? It can really help make the world be a more sustainable um, place. I mean, Tesla. I actually didn't. I wasn't first a Tesla holder. I was first a Solar City holder. I bought it when when it was really low because I believed that you know a few reasons around like. I thought their debt was underpriced and I thought they were underpriced as a stock and then, you know, it got bored and suddenly I owned Tesla stock as well. Um, and, you know, you look at what Tesla is doing, it's building this integrated, like, flywheel nearly of let's have sustainable energy production, sustainable energy use being cars, and then sustainable energy storage so that we can still access the, the energy use when it's off-peak. Um, and they're, they're literally tackling all of it. I mean, Australia, I think, had the world's largest uh, battery installed mm -hmm. in, in South Australia um, you know, a, a, few, a few months ago because it was a bet against um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, which is an Australian tech billionaire, against Elon Musk being like, can you build this? Like, this is a huge problem. You know, South Australia was literally just going dark because the coal f coal plants weren't able to always keep up with the peak um, yeah. power demands of, you know, like coal can't spin up like like uh, like a, a lithium-ion battery can. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes hours to get. And it's super dirty. Yeah. So and, it was taking I mean, a long time, and it was super dirty, and that it, that was such a big validation of Tesla's technology. Uh, on the on such a big scale that that battery in Australia. Yeah, I mean, so South Australia actually isn't as dirty as all the other states. It's it's like seventy percent renewable or something. It's really like impressive. But the problem is that it's very because it's renewables, it can be, you know, it's 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 very like peaky. If the winds, yeah, you need to balance it. Yeah, out. Yeah, you need to balance it out. So they were importing power from Victoria, but that wasn't always available. So suddenly Tesla te technology comes in, and you know they're literally making like so much money now tesla because they're operating I, th I don't know if they own it but they're operating this battery and they're providing um this s grid stability and they earn money doing that yeah so it could actually turn out to be like an extremely profitable yeah and i think it's less like battery. tesla sold it to them i don't know if they're getting recurring revenue but like the government seem like the roi yeah from the government seems to be incredibly positive and that you know, that's one thing I get excited about of Tesla is they validated that they haven't, they were sell starved because of the Model 3. So, you know, yeah. that's kind of this dark horse story is that's just as big of an end market. It's already been validated. Yeah, you know, I mean, is that going to ramp? But I'm curious to play devil's advocate. What Do you have numbers on your Tesla investment or like, you know, why do you think it's, you know, where would you, 
how do you think about the valuation? Yeah, I, I mean, I do financial models on every single investment I make. I, I go through the, you know, the 10Ks and 10Qs and read them carefully because I think, you, you know, you can believe in these like important missions, but at the end of the day, it has to be a sustainable business. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've got to have a, a business model that enables you to be sustainably profitable. In terms of the financials on, on Tesla, I mean, you see th- things like Sandy Monroe, who is an expert in, in um, like ripping down cars to see whether, you know, how they're built and producing these reports, thinks that Tesla can hit a 30% gross margin on the, the Model 3. You know, and you look back a few months, everyone was saying Tesla's not going to be able to scale the Model 3. What have they done? They've gone and scaled Model 3s and now they're producing 6,000 per week. And you look at the numbers of, okay, can they hit 30% gross margin on half a million Model 3s a year, then suddenly Model Ys, the Tesla Semi, which I think is like crazy exciting. I mean, disrupting trucking suddenly you're not only if you if you make a a a truck that is significantly cheaper than what it is today you're not only disrupting trucking you're actually starting to eat into railway rail rail right Mm -hmm. because rails rails the cheapest way to to do um shipping and logistics today but you need to have that infrastructure in place and it's all this this sunk cost in in to do it, but if you're starting to say platoon, uh, semis, yeah, which Elon Musk said is basically like rail, which yeah. is so cra- interesting. Which is you know suddenly the the total it's adjustable market train, on that you know? is is crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, you know you don't like why would you invest in in trains anymore? Like the you know roads are just so much better. And speaking of railroads, you told me one of the most favorite analogies I've ever heard about SpaceX, which is that they're building the railroads of the future. Yeah, like I mean, real, like, can you elaborate on that? Elon Musk seems to be, he is without a doubt the most visionary, like, person on this planet. He seems to be, he, he nearly in his head is like, I'm going to try and make Earth sustainable, and if I can't, I've got rockets that can get me <laughs> off the planet. Yeah. But what, in, in my eyes, what SpaceX is doing is it, it is building the railway of the space industry and, and like, you know, the future of what humanity is going to be. It is inevitable that we will be a multi-planetary species. I mean, if we, like, I want to live in a future that's exciting and that's, like, it, it, it's got to happen. I mean, it's the next big step. It's Jeff Bezos always says that he believes that all heavy industry will move off planet and Earth will be turned into a sanctuary. Yeah, And so it, cool. to me, that is, like, something that I want to see. You know, I want to see all the, the dirty mining, all all of these like heavy industry um, things that is currently done on earth, why not do them in space, right? Where there's just limitless space to do things and resources. And in terms of what Elon Musk is doing, SpaceX seems to be the company that will enable entrepreneurs all around the world to access that market. You know, before 2007, space was sort of this frontier that only governments were allowed to play in. And now suddenly, because the the Falcon 9 has made launches like literally an order of magnitude cheaper, you know, you see all these micro satellite companies, all these space startups starting because it's just like, it is, it's like the embryo. It's just starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. all these small space companies starting to to use this infrastructure which Elon Musk is building. I mean, in a way, that's sort of, it seems to be a line in what Elon Musk does. Like, you look at his first company, it was like this map startup. Zip2. Zip2, right? That was doing, like, mapping. Like, that's yeah. an infrastructure layer thing. Then you look at what PayPal was. Infrastructure payments, infrastructure. payments infrastructure energy infrastructure energy infrastructure infrastructure transportation exactly both on planet and off planet like it's all these infrastructure level players and then suddenly you're opening up the market for all these other entrepreneurs to access yeah. wow. new things that just don't exist 
and it's like the in the the way that AWS is a platform for entrepreneurship and creativity yeah. in its own way. It's that kind of idea that the the greatest businesses with the longest lasting value are the businesses that allow other people to build incredible businesses on top of them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so kind of jumping ahead and cheating a little bit here because you told me that what if they're the next trillionaire in the world or the first trillionaire is going to come from mining so putting on the spot here are you willing to talk about if you had a one crazy mining startup idea what would it be and how would you do it yeah so i I don't have to put it on the record if you don't want to no i think it's the dopest idea i've ever heard this is (laughs) this is something that i think about a lot in my spare time um i mean I read on the internet that the first trillionaire will be, you know, from asteroid mining. And it makes sense because it's sort of like the most, what is the most fundamental thing in like the economy? It's pulling out these base level resources, like atoms from the universe. Yeah. And starting to turn them into things that suddenly you build like services on top of. And you just get higher and higher up at the pyramid. Yeah, the raw materials. That's but it's how the everything raw starts. Mater- yeah, exactly. It's the raw materials. It's where every everything starts. And if you think about and it, that's almost like the potential energy of humanity's economic output is like is like exactly. how many raw materials we have. That's the the physical limit of our potential as an economy. Well, there's actually a scale, the Kar- Karaskov scale. I, I mispronounced that, but it's it's how do you measure a civilization on a universe level? And Earth, as we know it today, is at like 0. 0.38, uh, 0, 0.738. And what that means is like level one is you're using all the available energy that hits your planet. Level two is you're using all the available energy in your solar system or in your, your, uh, that your star emits. So for us, that would be the sun, all the available energy that the sun emits every day. And then level three is you're using all the available energy in, like, in your your galaxy. Um, that, in terms of giving comparisons, I mean, we're at like 0.7, but it's a, a log scale, so we're not as close as people think. Some people think we could get there in 100 years. You know, who knows? Suddenly, if you get past level one, you're nearly becoming, you know, you're starting, you're, you're becoming very hard to wipe out. In terms of level two... That is like uh, Star Trek, right? Level two is like yeah. Star Trek. I'm glad Trek. you put it into something we could all understand. And then <laughs> level level three, where you're using like all the the available energy um, in your galaxy, or have I screwed that up? No, no. Level two is Star Wars, right? Because they're like, you know, they're able to like destroy planets, for example, like crazy power. I mean, they're, they're, maybe they're on this, and they're probably Star Trek and Star Wars are probably the same thing. I haven't really thought about it that much. Um, but in terms of the crazy idea that, like, I think no one is thinking about the right way is, you know, asteroid mining, coming back to that. In order to solve that problem, you're, you're going to need to first solve that on, on planet, on Earth right that is so much easier and what that involves is is having an automated process where there's very little human interaction when you're pulling resources out of the ground you see companies like planetary resources starting these asteroid mining companies and they're doing it by first oh let's send a rover to the moon no let's first like, should be automate earth earth extraction yes exactly let's first automate make it like as closed loop as possible because you know mining requires all these external things like you need crazy amount of water usually to to do mining depending on you know whether it's open pit or or um in 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 the ground like the the i've forgotten the word for it the terminology but it's like in in tunnels like it it's very already very complex and you know we've taken pickaxes and just put bigger pickaxes in in the form of machinery so in terms of like automating that, and then you can do it off planet. And what Elon Musk is building is the ability for someone, some entrepreneur out there, you know, we don't know who, to build these companies that will be able to take technology that we're developing on planet and like scale it infinitely, like infinitely throughout like our solar system. 
Yeah, and the the real crux of it is there's a cost curve that's coming down. So there's this cost curve of the the cost to extract resources on Earth, which could actually run out when we run out of resources. But the other part that's coming down is the cost to e- extract these resources in space, which is now probably astronomical. And I think almost in some ways, I'm not even convinced asteroid mining's real because like you have to land on this flying rock and then somehow extract metals and send it back to like that just seems insane to me. But the the biggest difficulty of that cost curve and part of it is rocket technology you know yeah. actually getting to space and if Elon Musk has made that a magnitude cheaper and continues improving that then he is single-handedly accelerating the cost curve of making asteroid mining feasible so i'm so, I, I mean in in terms of asteroid mining i you so that's just one example of like the, when we talk about the entrepreneurship that gets unlocked from SpaceX's oh, yeah. platform, yeah, 100%. that this mining, you know, is a perfect uh, example. One hundred percent. And like you're starting to, you know, there, there isn't like we don't necessarily need to bring these resources back to Earth. Right. Like we can start to. I guess all the heavy industry is going to be in space yeah, already. It's, it's anyway. going to be in space. Right. <laughs> it's it's going to be off planet. It, it might be on like a moon. Right. It might be somewhere else. Like there's no, re- Earth will start to become a sanctuary, and suddenly, when you think, think about like humanity, you'll start thinking, oh, you know, Mars, the Moon, yeah. Europa, all these different places. And I think it'll be fundamentally a very good thing for humanity. I know we have all these problems on Earth. I mean, I'm literally trying to solve one of them. You know, extreme <laughs> poverty and humanitarian aid. But you have all these problems on Earth and they'll, they'll always be there. There will always be relative problems on Earth. If suddenly, instead of associating with a country, you know, you associate with the United States, I associate with Australia, being very, like, nationalistic, we'll start to associate with, like, humanity as a species. And I think once that starts to happen and the social psyche changes, we'll just see, like, phenomenal growth. I mean, yeah. humanity in a way is like an unstoppable, unstoppable virus. Totally. And we're on the cusp of, in many ways, the biggest power move humanity and humans have ever made, which is becoming multiplanetary. We're going from one planet to two. The growth trajectory of society goes from maxing out the TAM of one planet to maxing out the universe. Like, yeah. that's the click. And my theory is this will actually drive a tremendous bull market in financial markets for, throughout, like, we're young. I'm 26, you're 20, the next 50 years of our investments, like, I think we will start to price in the expansion to new planets in space, and that will drive this fundamental bull market. (laughs) Like, I think, and like you said, it's, to me, it's really inspiring and exciting, because it's a cause for humanity to rally around that's positive about something we're all doing together and achieving and growing, and it seems like that's what the world needs. We're so divided, so fragmented, even in, even in cities, like, it's just ridiculous when you think about it, and so... That's kind of why I'm so pumped about space and what's happening. And, like, even if we don't get to Mars for another 10 years, I think the excitement of us becoming multiplanetary will start to hit a lot sooner than that. Yeah, I'm, it makes me so excited to wake up every every morning, knowing that that is the potential that we have a, as a species. You know, the reason that I do the work we do with Sempo is because I think, like, having the the privilege and the opportunity to do what I'm doing at such a young age is because I had the financial tools and the stability in my life to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people don't have those financial tools. So you suddenly give everyone on the planet financial tools and you have the ability for anyone in the world to be able to start a company, start a space company. Yeah. You know, who knows where we'll go. There's all these entrepreneurs who aren't getting like a fair right? shake. E- exactly. And, and we're not even letting them try and create all the value they want to create. And so just, that seems just like because the problem they don't have that access, is tackling. They don't have access to the internet or they don't have access to a, a bank account or they, they don't have access to the ability to accept payments. You know, like things like Stripe, right? They're only available in like 26 countries. Mm-hmm. So on that note, we're sort of en- wrapping up on time, yeah. but like, thank you so much for coming in. Amazing conversation. And I'm a huge believer in Sempo. And I think, you know, not necessarily that it'll be successful because you guys are super small to yeah, start up, but like, very early stage. <laughs> but, but I just commend you for working on such a problem that is real, that needs to be solved, that can move the needle. And the, I think there's not enough credit that you've been, that you've gotten for like aligning the gooseberries of like a profitable business model that can be VC backed, that can generate wealth to get smart people working for it, but also really moving the needle for a lot of underprivileged people. Like I think that is an inspiring alignment of incentives that a lot of people should be aiming for if they really want to tackle problems, you know? 
And so I think through that lens, I love Sempa, what you guys are doing. So I don't know if you want to like tell the hyper changers anything, what to look out for or, or anything like that. Maybe a guess on Tesla. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you so much. This podcast has been phenomenal. You know, I've really enjoyed it. Um, in terms of Sempo, like if, if you're interested in, in what we're doing, then definitely like follow us on Twitter. Um, we're pretty active there. And there's a few like big pilots that we've got in the pipeline um, with some governments and well-known NGOs. So yeah, we'd love to like have you sort of follow along our journey. And there'll probably also be the ability to donate through our system to these people using Dai if that interests you as well. Awesome. Definitely we'll keep the, the hyper trainers update on that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tristan. Thank you. Have a good one. Peace out.